Thanks for tuning into Charlottesville Soundboard. I'm your host, Mary Garner McGee. Soundboard airs every other Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Virginia Audio Collective. This time last year, we all had some difficult decisions to make about holiday travel. This time in 2020, the first vaccines were in the final stages of the approval process, and COVID-19 was running wild through the population. Thankfully, this year the situation is a lot different if you and your family have been vaccinated. And so this week, we're hearing from Dr. Avula of the Virginia Department of Health about the COVID-19 vaccine for children aged 5 to 11 and booster shots for the rest of us. Here's Dr. Avula and our assistant producer, Paige Waterhouse. Yeah, hi, my name is Danny Avula. I am the local public health director in Richmond and Henrico. Uh, and over the last year, I've been serving as the state vaccination coordinator. How did the FDA and CDC determine that the vaccine was safe and effective for kids? Well, in the same way that they determined safety and efficacy for adults through extended rigorous clinical trials, uh, through robust reviews of the data by two different independent advisory committees and then by the agencies themselves, um, so, you know, the reason the 5 to 11s took longer was because uh, with any medication or vaccine, we typically uh, ensure effectiveness and safety in adults. And so we, we did that over the course of much of, of 2021. Um, and then, you know, once that was established early on, they started to open up clinical trials for younger age groups. And so if you'll remember, we had adolescents that were approved sometime in April or early May. Um, and then clinical trials for five to 11s that were recruited around that time. Um, so, you know, what they found in the trials was that uh, at a lower dose, so these pediatric vaccines are a third of the dose of the adult dose, um, but at a lower dose, they were able to achieve the same uh, protective effect as measured by, by circulating antibodies um, and have a lower side effect profile. And so that's going to be really important for kids and for parents who, who uh, don't want their kids to maybe experience the same severity of side effects that they did. Uh, and so that's what they saw through the trials. They saw uh, lower severity of side effects, none of the really severe, serious side effects uh, that, we've, that we've seen so far, um, and a really good antibody response. So that's really encouraging, and uh, we'll, we'll see, obviously, we'll, we'll continue to monitor side effects as we go from a scale of, of a couple thousand people in trials to millions of people who are vaccinated across the country and across the world. So you said this vaccine is a third less than the one given to adults. Are there any other differences between this vaccine and the one given to those that are 12 and up? Yeah, let me clarify. It's not a third less. It's a third of the total dose. So the adult dose is 30 micrograms. Uh, this 5 to 11 pediatric dose is 10 micrograms. So it's a third of the adult dose. Um, and other than that, uh, there, I mean, the, the active ingredients are the same. The mixture is different. And so they're mixed and distributed in different vials uh, just for ease of administration uh, for, you know, for doc doctors and pharmacists and nurses to make sure that they have the right uh, color top file for four, five to 11s. Uh, there's some other slight differences like the buffer that, that's used in the vaccine mixture is different. So um, some slight differences in terms of the storage and handling of the vaccine, but the main ingredients and the main way that the vaccine works is the same. Okay, interesting. So do you know how much vaccine in Virginia is getting and when? 
Yeah, so you know, we started receiving shipments on November 1st. Um, the approval came on November at the end of the day on November 2nd. Uh, and we'll so this first week, November 1st to November 8th, we're expecting 377,000 total doses of vaccine. Uh, the bulk of that will go to doctors' offices and pharmacies. Um, about 125,000, a little over a third of the vaccine will go to pharmacies, about 50 to 60% to doctors' offices, just because we know that those are the places where families feel uh, the most comfortable taking their child to get vaccinated. Um, health departments and then some of our larger scale vaccination centers. So in the Charlottesville area, the, the old Big Lots uh, has one of those large community vaccination sites. Um, and we, uh, you know, we expect to get more vaccine each week, but 377,000 doses is more than 50% of the eligible five to 11 year olds across the state. And so uh, we have plenty of vaccine. We certainly don't expect uh, that kind of demand in week one. Uh, eventually we'll get there. You know, I expect our five to 11 coverage rates to, uh, to mirror what we've seen in 12 to 15 year olds, which is about two thirds, 66% or so. Um, so, but we will continue to get more vaccine each week. And, and, uh, right now there's lots of options for, for families to, uh, sign their kids up. For parents who aren't vaccinated themselves, are is there an opportunity for them to get vaccinated at the same time as their kids? Absolutely. I think it's a great time for parents who have been on the fence themselves to, to not only protect their kids, but also to get themselves vaccinated. Uh, and I would add that this, that many parents would also qualify for a booster right now. And so if you haven't done that yet, um, going, you, you know, signing up either at a community vaccination center, because that those larger sites are certainly delivering vaccine to not only five to 11 year olds, but primary series and boosters to adults as well. Um, many of the pharmacies are also doing that. We'll have options for both of those. Um, and then uh, depending on your doctor's office, you know, if you're, if you're going to a pediatrician, unlikely that they'll have adult vaccine available, but, um, but certainly you could check. What would you tell parents who are hesitant about getting their child vaccinated? Uh, first, that it's normal. You know, I think as a parent, uh, as parents, we we all should be concerned with the, the health and safety of our kids. And so we wouldn't be doing our jobs if we weren't uh, concerned or hesitant or wondering or wanting to ask more questions. Like that is the right thing to do. Um, and, and it's part of the reason, Paige, that we sent so much of the vaccine to doctor's offices because we know that parents are gonna want the opportunity to ask questions, to talk to trusted physicians and nurses and pharmacists about, uh, about this vaccine. Um, so, you know, a couple things that I'll say, uh, in, and we've had to go through this ourselves as parents, you know, my wife and I have five children, uh, four of them are 12 and up and have already gotten fully vaccinated. One of them uh, is now eligible and she'll be going this weekend to get vaccinated. And, and so um, I think the, the big question that parents ask is why should I get my kid vaccinated if most kids don't get severe disease, which is true. You know, the vast majority of younger kids who get COVID are just gonna have really mild cold symptoms. Uh, but we also know that this has not been completely harmless, even for young kids. And we have seen uh, since the beginning of the pandemic, almost a thousand kids get hospitalized. That has really ramped up with this Delta variant really since, uh, you know, through August and September were the highest rates of pediatric hospitalization we saw in, in Virginia and across the country. Um, and sadly, we've also lost 10 children to COVID. And so knowing that this is not completely harmless, knowing that even though it's rare for kids to get hospitalized or worse from this disease, if we can prevent it, uh, we should. 
and and especially when we have a vaccine that has the the safety and effectiveness profile that this vaccine has has been shown to do. Um, one of the other you know practical concerns that parents have had has been. Um, about schooling, right? Kids have mostly gone back to, almost entirely gone back to in-person school now. And uh, and there have been challenges in certain school systems, right? When invariably, when we have a lot of disease in the community, that disease is going to make its way into schools. Uh, exposures have happened and kids have had to be quarantined. They'd have to either switch to virtual for two weeks or, or miss school altogether. But having your child fully vaccinated means you don't have to do that. It means you, your child can stay in school. So I think vaccinating kids will will lead to less uh, disruption to schooling, to less learning loss because of that transition to virtual. Um, and then there's a community impact. You know, we, we know we want to protect kids individually against those rare consequences. We know that kids are big spreaders of a disease. And so the more younger kids we get vaccinated, uh, the more, uh, you know, the less transmission overall we see and the more we protect our community. And then the last thing I'll say about that is uh, that Parents have been pretty concerned about this myocarditis side effect that was talked about a lot with the mRNA vaccine. So that inflammation of the heart muscle or the surrounding tissue pericarditis. Um, and, and so I think it's helpful to have a, a kind of a frame of reference of like, how often is that happening? How real a risk is it? Um, and that's the, the study that the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice did when they originally started to see that myocarditis safety signal. They collected all the data and they said, okay, what do we know about this? And does the benefit still outweigh the risk? And what they found was that if you vaccinated a million people with the two-dose mRNA vaccine, you would expect to see somewhere between 30 and 40 cases of myocarditis. So a really rare instance, you know, at, a, at, a, at the scale of a million, um, but important to note nonetheless. So 30 to 4 cases of myocarditis is the risk. On the benefit side, you would prevent 11,000 cases of COVID, 500 hospitalizations, 120 ICU admissions, and six deaths. And so, you know, looking at the entirety of that data, the, the benefit of vaccinating the community far outweighs the risk, especially because in the majority of myocarditis cases, this was a self-limited disease, meaning that people got better without any intervention. Um, so a, a mild but rare side effect compared to the, the incredible protective effect of the vaccine clearly points in, in that direction. Are there any other side effects parents should be worried about? Uh, not so in the clinical trials around five to 11 year olds, the side effect profile was actually uh, significant, significantly better than in adults, you know, cause I, I think a lot of adults got the vaccine. They, they had that achiness and fever for, you know, four to eight hours. Um, and they say, oh, do I want to subject my, my kid to that? Um, and what the, the clinical trials showed for five to 11 year olds is that the side effects were similar fever irritation or pain at the at the site of injection, some achiness, but they were less severe and less frequent than in adults. So that's good news because the kids aren't going to have as, as many effects. But in that clinical trial, we did not see any of the severe side effects like myocarditis. Um, so, so parents can be reassured about that as well. That's good to hear. So what should parents be doing between now and the time when their child gets vaccinated? Well, I think the first thing is just to, you know, look for opportunities to get your child vaccinated, you know, whether that's um, going to vaccinate.virginia.gov, 
whether that's calling 1-877-VACCINE-VA or calling your pediatrician or your pharmacy uh, to schedule an appointment. And then to do all the things that we have been doing to keep our kids safe, make sure that the adults around that child are vaccinated, uh, ensure that they're wearing their masks in school or other public settings, um, and then keeping your children home if they are developing symptoms and getting them uh, and, and getting them tested. For more information about how to get a booster shot or where to get your child vaccinated against COVID-19, go to vdh.virginia.gov. You're listening to Charlottesville Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Virginia Audio Collective. Both are a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on this show are not the positions of the university. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, protecting Virginia's air, water, and natural treasures and leading the way towards a healthy environment for all. Learn more at southernenvironment.org. Thanks for sticking around. In this half of the show, we want to share some important reporting from another local podcast called Sacred and Profane. Sacred and Profane is a project of the Race, Religion, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. And this episode is about how we mark and mourn the places in our city where enslaved people were bought and sold. I'm going to hand things over to Jelaine Schmidt. She's a local historian, activist, and a professor of religion, and she reported this episode. My name is Fountain Hughes. I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia. Fountain Hughes was an old man when he sat down for an interview with a Library of Congress researcher named Herman Norwood in 1949. My grandfather was 115 years old when he died. And now I am 101 years old. Norwood is fascinated that Hughes had lived through the Civil War, which had taken place nearly 90 years before they sat down together. Do you remember much about the Civil War? No, I don't remember much about it. You're a little young then, I guess. (laughs) But Hughes wasn't interested in talking about the war. Nor was Hughes interested in talking about famous landmarks like Thomas Jefferson's Monticello Estate or the University of Virginia that Jefferson founded. But there was another place he remembered. The place his mind returned to was Charlottesville's Court Square. All through the 18th and 19th century, it was the place where business was conducted, where men like Jefferson and Madison and Monroe argued legal cases, and where property was bought and sold, including human beings. And we were slaves. We belonged to people. They sell us like they sell horses and cows, auction bench. Up on the bench and beat on you, just same as you're bidding on the cat, you know. Was that in Charlotte or Charlottesville? That was in Charlottesville. Charlottesville, Virginia. They'd sell the women. They'd sell the to the what called I was sailed every month, you know, at the courthouse. I'm Jelaine Schmidt. I'm Curtis Schaefer. And I'm Martine Halverson Taylor. And this is Sacred and Profane. Today on the show, we're going to talk about how Charlottesville remembers that history with our colleague, Jelaine Schmidt. 
Jelaine took us on a tour of Charlottesville's Confederate monuments, which featured in an earlier episode. Since then, three of those monuments were removed from the land around Charlottesville's county courthouse. But just a few feet from where those statues stood is an unmarked patch of brick, the location of the auction block that Fountain Hughes so vividly remembered. I'm sitting here in downtown Charlottesville's Court Square at the corner of Park and Jefferson Streets on a park bench in the shade, and next to me is Myra Anderson. Myra, can you tell us why we're here? Tell us who you are. Tell us what this space means to you. I am a Charlottesville native. Um, I'm a mental health advocate and poet. And I'm also um, a descendant of the enslaved families of Monticello, the Hearn family. And I'm here in Court Square, which is a place where six of my ancestors were sold um, in 1829 at the second estate sale of Thomas Jefferson. So I'm literally looking across the street at the very place that they were put on the auction block. Myra's ancestors were sold to defray Thomas Jefferson's debts. They were among the hundreds of people enslaved at his Monticello plantation during his lifetime, and some of the hundreds of people bought and sold in the shadow of the Albemarle County Courthouse in downtown Charlottesville. In our last episode, we talked about how the Confederate statues that dominated Charlottesville's downtown were part of America's civil religion. It was these symbols and stories that helped define American identity and public memory. As these statues come down, a new type of public memory is emerging in Charlottesville. Stories that reflect the lives of the majority of the people who lived in the surrounding county at the outbreak of the Civil War. Stories that put names to the enslaved men, women, and children who built Charlottesville's landmarks. These include the grounds of the University of Virginia and Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, and stories of their descendants who still live in Charlottesville today. Myra and I went to Court Square on a quiet Saturday morning. But even on a quiet day, there were still plenty of people in the square and nearby parks, people walking their dogs. There was a couple getting married by the county sheriff on the courthouse lawn. And a steady stream of people pausing in front of a small brick building just across from the courthouse itself. So we're standing here right now in front of the number zero building. And on the sidewalk here, amongst all the buckets of flowers, there used to be a... Do you remember, Myra, how there used to be a, a plaque there yes. in the sidewalk? Yes, that you could barely see because you were walking over top of it. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? That was right there? I mean, yeah, it's like no more than like one foot by one foot. I mean, you just, you know, if you walk by on the sidewalk, you wouldn't even see it because it's just set in the bricks, you know. Um... Um, and it said, it said, slave auction block, 
on this site, slaves were bought and sold. The corner at Jefferson and Park Streets that has become an informal memorial to the hundreds of people sold in Court Square is just one of several sites where auctions took place. A few yards away is the former site of the Eagle Tavern. The largest recorded sale of human beings in Charlottesville at at one time took place here, and it was Thomas Jefferson's estate sale. You know, he died in 1826, very much in debt. His executor was his grandson, Thomas Randolph Jefferson. And uh, the way of getting the estate out of debt was to sell its assets. And part of its so-called property were human beings. This is the place in 1829 right here where Jefferson's estate sold 33 enslaved people and... My ancestors were six of those 33. There was Davy Hearn Jr. And then there was actually my grandfather, David Hearn. There was Lily Hearn, who is my sixth great aunt. And she and her husband also were sold to a professor at the University of Virginia. Her husband's name was Ben Snowden. And then there was Fanny Gillette Hearn had already been sold in the 1827 sale to a professor at UVA. And so the story goes that Fanny was convincing the people who owned her to come and purchase her husband too. And that's exactly what happened. Myra's ancestors weren't alone in fighting to stay together. In 1852, another enslaved woman in Albemarle County, Maria Perkins, wrote to her husband. He too was enslaved to a different master. Their son had just been sold to yet another slaveholder in front of the county courthouse. Dear husband, I write you a letter to let you know of my distress. My master has sold Albert to a trader on Monday court day. Myself and the other child is also for sale. I want to hear from you soon before the next court day if you can. I want you to tell Dr. Hamilton or your master if either will buy me. I don't want a trader to get me. They took me to the courthouse A man by the name of Brady bought Albert and is gone. They say he lives in Scottsville. I'm quite heartsick. I am and ever will be your kind wife, Maria Perkins. Just listening to that letter, It's sad. It talks about desperation. It talks about despair. It talks about that the Albert, I'm assuming, is the young son has already been sold. Right. It's just it's words cannot like accurately express like the feeling I get inside just thinking about that. The one thing that kept them together, the love of family and to think all of that ended on the auction block. I I honestly think it's it's one of the greatest atrocities and we still haven't come to terms 
with that in a way that is open and transparent and speaks to the ugly past of what actually happened. We, we have yet to really unpack that. Like Myra says, Charlottesville has been reluctant to unpack much of its history. It's been easier to disavow the Confederate monuments. After all, they represent just four years of the town's past. It's been harder, however, to confront hundreds of years of slavery and systemic oppression of the Black community. But there has been some change. Last year, the University of Virginia dedicated the memorial to enslaved laborers. Names of some of the hundreds of people who labored to build and run the university, including Myra's ancestors, are now engraved in a stone circle within sight of the university's famous rotunda. And Jefferson's former plantation, Monticello, has also taken steps. When Myra was growing up in Charlottesville, she remembers visiting Monticello on a school trip and touring the house. Slavery was never mentioned, even though Jefferson was one of the largest slaveholders in Virginia. My grandmother told me when I was probably in late elementary school that our ancestors were enslaved at Monticello, and honestly, I did not believe her. And the reason, the reason I didn't believe her is because we had visited Monticello in school, and they never mentioned anything about enslaved. They used the term servants. I didn't think at that point that there were any enslaved people there. And then I thought if they were, surely my teacher would have told me that. And so what is grandmother? She's talking a little bit foolish. In the years since, Monticello started the Getting Word Project. It's an attempt to contact descendants of the more than 600 people held in slavery at Monticello during Jefferson's lifetime and to document their family stories. Myra had heard about the project in passing. It was only in 2018 I was on a trip to Ghana. I went on the sister city delegation. At one point, it was 56 of us. We were introducing ourselves. And the historian for Monticello at the time, Naya Bates, was on the trip. And when she introduced herself, I went over to her. And I was like, you know, I know there is like a descendants project at Monticello. And I wanted to know if you could get me connected to that. Because I know my family is connected. My grandmother told me. And she was like, well, who's your family? And I said, the Hearn family. And she says, we've been looking for your family. So like, here we are, like 5,000 miles away. And we just had this one serendipitous moment that changed my life. When we got back here to Charlottesville, she was like, you know, there's been books written with your family information in it. And she gave me the titles of books. Uh, she connected me with the uh, librarian at uh, the Jefferson Library. And I began to, to go up there and learn as much about my family as I could. I sometimes consider myself lucky in the sense that at least I know their names. You hear about individuals being sold and the only perhaps just a, a, like a, a farmhand or something like this. It's, it, it makes the atrocity even greater because we will never know who those individuals are. And so I think there is an opportunity if there was such a space to even bring light to the people that we don't know and hold space for that as well. We've talked about official memorials 
And what Myra is reminding us of is all of the informal memorials, the sites of memory, the stories of memory that literally bubble up. And you've done a lot of work, Jelaine, on how to recontextualize the built memorials of the past or remove them. How do you navigate these sort of memorials and, and what, what are their futures? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing is that in Charlottesville, we love our public history. People are very passionate about it. And there's just a segment of the public that has become very insistent about memorializing, especially the number zero building there, the the former Benson Brothers building on the corner of Jefferson and Park Streets where that slave auction block was. You know, you go by there and several times a week there are fresh flowers that are there. You know, people are just, they just flock to it. When Myra and I were there, you know, that Saturday morning, people were clearly seeking it out and coming there and taking pictures. You know, and at first when it sprang up in February of 2020, the city, the public works department used to just clean it up and and they've just given up, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. It's just so repeated and so insistent. And and it shows how sensitive public memory has has become around this specific place. I mean, it's one of many places, but this specific place, the Benson and Brothers building, is a sort of it's a sort of hallowed ground, you know, and and not to be trivialized. And now it's for sale. I know, exactly. Right. Yeah. So so the place where human beings were monetized is now itself being monetized. And here's the advertisement for the Benson and Brothers building. The best location in Court Square. This historic and unique property is ideal as an office for a legal financial consulting or technology company. Or it could be renovated and converted to a charming historic urban residence. The property has several parking spaces and looks out onto the Albemarle County Courthouse. This is an opportunity to purchase or lease a one-of-a-kind historic property on Court Square. Yeah, it's definitely one-of-a-kind. And, uh, you know, the best location, you know, for what, I guess, is the question. And, and you know, a lot of members of the public were just indignant when they, when they saw this. One local journalist, Jordy Yeager, tweeted out, What's the going rate for a historically preserved site of human trafficking, bondage, and violence? In Charlottesville, apparently the bidding starts at $1,350,000. Yeah, and, the, and, and I guess the point is that the meaning-making and the memory-making is not going to stop. Yeah, I think that's, that's going to go on. The public repudiation that there's been over the past several years of these Confederate monuments and the frustration with the fact that they... The monuments just stayed, you know, for years beyond their welcome. I think that just kind of got channeled toward resting control over these other sites, you know, like like with slave auction blocks. So, Jelaine, in the case of the Confederate monuments, it was fairly obvious why we should talk about them in terms of religion. The plinths, for instance, have angels and religious symbolism carved on them. They were installed with clergy attending and giving speeches and blessings. In the case of the auction block, what is the value of talking about religion? Yeah, well, I think, you know, like you mentioned with the Confederate monuments, I mean, it's officially on public land. It is maintained by the city with our tax dollars, you know, and, and you know, there's this officialdom to it. We can call it, you know, civil religion is what it is. You know, public school children are brought there on field trips, you know, et cetera. 
And with the slave auction block, it's definitely, it's more of a kind of bubbling up, you know, kind of a popular sentiment. This is not something that's been endorsed by the city. I mean, like I mentioned, you know, the, at first the city public works department kept clearing away, you know, the, the flowers and mementos that were left. But I, but I think, you know, people are investing it with meaning, recovering, you know, the, the memory, you know, of, of the, the people who were sold there, pulling them further into our community of memory. Let's, let's put it that way. One of the, the interesting things about these memorials is not simply that they're unofficial, but it's what, what people are actually doing. It's how they're actually making meaning out of their renewed sense of their long history and that people are investing it with ritual uh, in the same way that you would visit a grave and put down flowers. They, they want to mark something as, as significant, and that's religion. That's right. And, and especially, you know, as the past, for the past three years, um, the community's been holding slave auction block vigils, you know, kind of on the eve of the Liberation and Freedom Day commemorations, you know, every year in, in, in early March. And so, yeah, and so the community has been drawn as a group and listening to the very stories that we've just been recounting here, you know. And so this has, this has been kind of radiating out into the community. And I think it's, you know, kind of planted a, a different sort of consciousness of the community's history and and people have become, you know, more insistent, you know, on 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 claiming this. And there's just really a sense going forward that it should be the descendants that should have input um, and uh, you know, a, a role in steering this discussion. So I think the very thing that's starting to happen, and I hope that it continues to happen, is making seats, lots of them, at the table for uh, descendants, people who have been most affected by those atrocities of the past. And so I think if that is the focus, as we look at how to commemorate, how to memorialize, and what to do in these spaces, and if we do that, whatever direction and whatever the outcome is, is going to be good. Because in a way, that in and of itself is redressing something that was not a part of the past by bringing voice to that. That's excellent. Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. Our program manager is Ashley Duffalo. Today's show was reported by Jelaine Schmidt. Our guest was Myra Anderson. Our reader was Angie Chapman. Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find out more about our work at religionlab.virginia.edu or by following us on Twitter at The Religion Lab. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Charlottesville Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Our assistant producer this week is Paige Waterhouse. 
Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marin Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Charlottesville Soundboard.